Take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You're going to look at the subject matter this morning from despair to hope. From despair to hope. John chapter 20. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And we're going to read the chapter here in its entirety. John chapter 20. From despair to hope. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails in the place, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Father, we are so grateful for the narratives in the New Testament that talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we know that there is no other hope of salvation that we have. There's no other assurance or confidence that we have that all our sins are washed away except in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you today that through his death for us, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of our sins. And through His resurrection, we have new life. We have eternal life and the promise of being with you in heaven one day. God, if there's even one here today who does not personally have this hope, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do in their lives what only He can do, that He would bring about conviction and faith. And Lord, as we leave this place today, help us to understand that we have the greatest message of all to tell to a world that is lost in darkness. So give us boldness and courage to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been reading a good book or watching a movie and perhaps it did not end the way you were anticipating that it would end? Saving Private Ryan was a 1998 movie by Steven Spielberg about the invasion of Normandy back in World War II. The movie is well known for the intensity of the first uh, 27 minutes as Allied troops are landing at Omaha Beach on June the 6th, 1944. Tom Hanks stars as a ranger by the name of Captain John Miller whose squad is given the assignment of finding a paratrooper, Private First Class James Francis Ryan, played by Matt Damon. Private Ryan is to be pulled from the war and sent back home because already his three brothers have been killed in combat. And the military decides that no family should have to lose all four sons to war. They locate a Private James Ryan, but it turns out to be the wrong Private Ryan. 
They follow various leads and they trample all over Europe looking for the right private Ryan. Some of them die in the process. Once finding him, he says it's not fair to the other soldiers for him to get a free pass to return home that he is prepared to die with the only brothers that he has left. In an intense battle to hold a bridge and prevent the Germans from further advancement, just as American fighter planes show up to stop the German tanks, Captain John Miller is mortally wounded by a German soldier who had been previously set free. Looking at Private Ryan in the last few seconds of his life, he says, Son, earn this. Now the movie's what I call a Prozac movie. <clears throat> Just when you think everything's going to turn out okay and there's going to be a happy ending, tragedy strikes and it turns out to not be such a happy ending after all. Now folks, that's a pretty superficial comparison to what we see here in John 20, but I think you get the point. The disciples have seen Jesus do miracle after miracle. He has conclusively shown them and proven to them that He is none other than the Son of the living God. In fact, John closes chapter 20 by saying, There were many other signs that Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may know that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the disciples have come to believe that. They've placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. Why, they've even seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, as you read all the gospel accounts put together, you begin to understand what their expectation was. Their expectation after Palm Sunday was that Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem and he was going to overthrow the Roman bondage and he was going to establish his throne and his rule. It was going to be an earthly rule and he was going to reign forever and ever and ever and defeat all of the enemies of Israel. That's what his disciples were expecting. In fact, they were expecting it so much that you'll recall on one occasion the mother of James and John said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my boys sit on your left and can one of them sit on your right? So expectations couldn't have been any higher. But now Jesus has been crucified. And they were absolutely stunned. The one who had given life is now himself dead. The story that they thought was supposed to end in victory has ended in tragedy, or at least that's what they still believe at the beginning of chapter 20. And so you can only imagine their mood. At the end of chapter 19, they've buried Jesus. They've gone to their respective homes or to the upper room because the Sabbath was upon them when they took Jesus off the cross. They've not been able to complete the burial process. That's where chapter 20 uh, picks up and begins. 
Now we come to understand from this passage that God doesn't simply meet our expectations in life. God comes to work His work. And as God works His work, His work and His purposes are greater than our purposes and greater than our work. Aren't you glad of that? He raises Jesus from the dead, ensuring that death and the grave have been defeated for all who down through the centuries place their faith in the Lord Jesus. For us, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, ensuring that you and I have eternal life as well. We have eternal life through Him. Now, the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is a perplexing scene. A perplexing scene. And as we talk about this, I want to ask you just to write down verses 1 through 9 beside that first point. We're not going to take time to read those verses again right now. But I want you to see a perplexing scene. In verse 1, we see the women going to the tomb. Now, the other gospel writers fill in all the details. We learn the names of all of the various women, and we learn that they are going there to complete a labor of love. They're going to anoint the body of the Lord Jesus Christ with spices. You see, the Jews did not embalm like the ancient Egyptians and like modern-day Americans or Europeans because they didn't embalm a body soon after death, after a body would be wrapped in cloth. They would put in uh, sometimes hundreds of pounds of spices into the folds between the different layers of the garment. Because if they didn't do this, even, even though a body would be placed into a tomb and there would be a rock covering there, if there was any way air could get out as the body decomposed, there would be a terrible stench in the air around a graveyard or around a tomb. And so they would put all these spices in, in the linen garments to try to offset that odor. That's what these ladies were going to do. When the ladies arrived, they did not find what they were expecting to find at all. Now, presumably, the ladies show up at the tomb in a couple of different groups. Now, that makes perfect sense. Because remember, when they took Jesus off the cross, the Sabbath was uh, arriving. And so they didn't have time to do this labor of love. And so they all went to their homes with the plan to meet again on that first Easter morning, the day after the Sabbath. And they were going to meet there at the tomb and they were going to complete this labor of love. And so it makes sense if they were each one respectively leaving from their home and going to the tomb, they would be arriving there at the tomb at different times and in different groups. And that explains some of the eyewitness accounts, whereas in one gospel it might focus in on one woman and in another gospel it might highlight another woman because the gospel writers are telling us the different experiences that these ladies had. And as they get to the tomb or as they're approaching their, the tomb, they're worried, they're anxious about how they would be able to remove the stone. But verse 1 tells us that God had already conquered that problem. The stone was already removed. Now, folks, this was very puzzling to them. It was a puzzling scene. It was a perplexing scene. 
Mary runs back to tell them her fears. She assumes that the body of Jesus has been removed by somebody. At this point, they're not expecting a resurrection. Peter and John run their legs off to get there to the tomb and see for themselves. And so there's a lot of different emotions going on here. We have fear. We have anticipation. Verse 8 tells us that we even have belief. John sees and believes. He's the first one that it's recorded that he saw and he believed. What does he believe? Well, Jesus had told him many times that he would go into Jerusalem and be crucified and buried, but on the third day he would raise to life again. And so John, no doubt, remembers all of these words, all of these promises of the Lord Jesus, and he sees this empty tomb and he places his faith in Jesus. He believes. Now Mary, as we see from verse 10, is still in grief. For our purposes right now, I want you to understand that there are a lot of different emotions going on here. This is definitely a puzzling scene. It's a perplexing scene. And you know, that's how life can be sometimes. Life can throw us curves that we didn't see coming. We're going in one direction and all of a sudden something happens and we end up going in an entirely different direction. Sometimes we change our circumstances, but oftentimes something happens to us beyond our control, something we just never planned for. And maybe that's happened to some of you here this morning. Something's maybe happened in your family or something's happened uh, to one of your children or something's happened on your job that you just never saw coming and you never expected that life was good. You were clicking along, going in one direction, and suddenly you were thrown a curve and it left you puzzled. That's what these ladies are experiencing at this point. They've been thrown a curve. They weren't expecting to see this. They weren't expecting an empty tomb. But you see, folks, God had a purpose in the bad. God was doing wonderful things there at Calvary. I mean, Calvary, when you stop and think about what was happening at Calvary from man's perspective, you could see it on the one hand as being very bad because wicked men, unbelieving men, were crucifying the Lord of glory. They were taking those big spikes and they were driving them into his hands and his feet and they were hanging him there on an old rugged cross. They were rejecting him and mocking him. And so from their perspective, they were doing a very bad thing, a very wicked thing. But what was God doing? God was doing a glorious thing, amen? Because God was using that. That was the foreordained plan of God, that God was using that for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Because the Bible says there on the cross, Jesus was dying as a substitution for your sin and my sin. I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve to die. Christ was not a sinner. He didn't deserve to die. And yet there he was. He was dying in our place as our substitution, as our propitiation. 
That's a big theological word that just simply refers to the fact that he was bearing all the wrath and the judgment of God against sin and he was dying in our place that we could go free. And so that's the wonderful thing that God was doing there at Calvary. Jesus was giving his life so that you and I can be reconciled to a holy God and be at peace with God. And so as bad and wicked as Calvary seemed from man's vantage point, yet from God's vantage point, it was God's love on display. God was bringing hope out of despair. He was bringing victory out of defeat. Had the bad not taken place, we would never enjoy the good. Now, on a much lesser scale, I want you to understand that can happen in your life with everyday circumstances. I realize we don't want to compare everyday trials in our life to what was going on at Calvary. I mean, Calvary was so monumental, nothing can compare with Calvary. But nonetheless, if God can bring good out of bad in a monumental, earth-shaking event like Calvary, don't you think He can do the same in your life? Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him, the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Paul's not saying there that everything in life is good because there are bad things in life that happen. There's evil things and sinful things. He's not saying everything's good, but he's saying we serve a mighty God who is able to bring good out of even bad things in your life. Aren't you thankful for that? And so as bad as Calvary was with the suffering of Christ, look at what God was accomplishing. He was accomplishing your redemption and my redemption. But these ladies, as they got to the tomb that first Easter, they didn't see that. They didn't understand that at this point. They're still puzzled. They're bewildered. Well, that sets them up for what they learn next. I want you to see, secondly, a powerful revelation beginning there in verse 10. Here Mary is crying. She's weeping because things can't get much worse in her mind. Not only uh, has Jesus been crucified, but now she assumes somebody's even stolen his body. And so insult has been added to injury. But with one simple word, by simply saying her name... Jesus reveals to Mary that he is alive. Folks, I want you to think about it. What a powerful revelation that was. To learn that Jesus is not dead. He's not dead. His body has not been stolen. He's alive. He's very much alive. What a powerful revelation that was. Can any message be any more powerful than that? No. Paul says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus' resurrection validated everything else about his life. It validated his words and his work. It validated his words because remember he had told his disciples 
I've got to go to Jerusalem. They were saying, no, Lord, don't go there. And he said, no, you don't understand. I've got to go to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, the religious leaders are going to reject me and they're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I will rise again from the dead. And he gave that analogy of Jonah. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, Jesus would have been shown to have been a liar or an exaggerator at best. But he said he would rise from the dead. He did rise from the dead. And so the resurrection validated his word and validated all of his promises. It validated his work. It validated all of his work and all of his miracles because his resurrection validated that God the Father, as Isaiah 53 says, that, that God the Father looked at his sacrifice and he was pleased by it. He accepted it. Had he not been raised from the dead, his sacrifice wouldn't have been acceptable. But it was because he was the sinless son of God. And so the resurrection of Jesus validated both his words and his works. Folks, everything hinges on the resurrection. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You see what a powerful message, what a powerful revelation the resurrection is. Everything hinges on it. If the dead are not raised, then that would mean, that would have to mean that not even Jesus was raised. And if Jesus wasn't raised, all of our hope in Christ is in vain. All of our faith is in vain. All of our words about Jesus are in vain. All of our preaching is in vain. All of our hope of eternal life is in vain. But praise God, he has been raised from the dead. What a powerful revelation. Jesus is alive. Folks, that changes everything. A God who conquers death changes everything. Would you want a God who couldn't conquer death? No. Can you imagine praying to a God who's dead? What hope in the world would we have that he would answer our prayers? None. But Jesus is alive. Remember what was said to Mary by the angel when the angel came to her and said, Mary, you're going to conceive through the Holy Spirit and your child that will be in your womb, you're to call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And she said to the angel, how can these things be? I've never been with a man. And the angel said, with God all things are possible. How can a virgin conceive with God all things are possible? How can the dead be raised? Because with God all things are possible.
All through the Bible, we see the power of God at work. There in creation, Genesis 1.1, he said, Let there be light, and there was light. There at the Red Sea, when, when the children of Israel, when their backs were against the Red Sea, and here came the Egyptian army and Pharaoh, they were trapped in, they were hemmed in. It looked like they were going to be defeated and killed. But right at the last moment, God opened the Red Sea up, and they walked across on dry ground. Forty years later, going into the promised land, when they get to Jericho, they march around those city walls seven times, and the walls come tumbling down over and over again, dozens and dozens of times throughout the Old Testament history. We see God taking care of one barrier after another in behalf of His people. And we get to the New Testament, and we see Him doing the very same thing. How can He do that? Because He's alive. Does he always do it the way we expect? No. The beginning of this chapter here this morning is an example of that. But when God moves, when God works, when God works his purposes, he works in a way that was greater than anything we could have anticipated. He may not act the way you expect him to in something you might be going through this morning, but he's alive. If he doesn't change your circumstances, he can change you. Classic example of that in the New Testament is Paul writing to the Philippians. And, and they were all concerned about him because he was imprisoned in Rome. And he said, no, I want you to understand this has turned out for the good of the gospel because here in Rome I'm chained to some of the most powerful men in the world in the most powerful city in the world. It's through this event that I'm able to preach the gospel in Caesar's household. Only God could have arranged that. That was God at work. That's what he's able to do because he lives. He lives and reigns at the Father's side. The Bible says after his resurrection there was the ascension and he's at the right hand of the Father. And today he is your advocate and he's my advocate. He's making intercession for us. I want to say to you today because Jesus lives... You and I need to see that oftentimes he's up to far more than we realize. The disciples thought Jesus was just going to come in and set up an earthly throne, but because of his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus made it clear to them his kingdom was not of this world. He, he has something far more in mind than we see here. He's not going to just be a king. He's going to be the king of kings. He's not going to be just the Lord. He's going to be the Lord of lords, and his throne is going to last forever. We need to remember that, that he's alive. Because of his resurrection, he's alive. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah walked in the temple one day and his chin was dragging because the earthly king was dead and the earthly king was a guy who had brought peace and prosperity to the land. And now he was dead. And so Isaiah the prophet is wondering what in the world is going to happen next? 
And in the midst of that, God gave him that vision that God's not dead. God is high and lifted up and exalted on his throne, and he's very much alive. I want you to remember that today. He's very much alive. Whatever you face in your life, and again, he may not change your circumstances, but he can change you. He can bring hope out of despair. Well, what's the result of all this? Let's look thirdly at a personal commission. A personal commission. Look at verse 19 and following. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. A living Lord changes everything, doesn't he? If Jesus was born of a virgin to be fully God and fully man, and he lived a sinless life so he could die for your sin and my sin on the cross, and if he ever lives to make intercession for us, and if he's preparing a place for us, then undoubtedly there are huge ramifications to that. If Jesus is who the Bible points him out to be, which we believe he is, otherwise you wouldn't be here this morning, then we've got a message to tell, don't we? If the events surrounding Easter are true, that means that a Savior has come into the world who has conquered sin and death in the grave. Folks, what could be bigger news than that? There's a lot of big news going on right now, isn't there? What ISIS has done this past week in Belgium, what they did a couple of months ago in Paris and in San Bernardino, on and on we could go with that. Then there's the economy. If you've been investing in the stock market recently, you've been taking a roller coaster ride, haven't you? And then all this election coverage news. Don't you get sick and tired of a lot of that? But folks, while all these things may be important, they pale in comparison to the greatest news of all. The greatest news of all is what we read about here, that we have a Savior who died for the sins of His people and He's been raised to give us eternal life. Nothing is more monumental than that. You look at the New Testament and you see that the resurrection changed everything. Right after the crucifixion, the disciples were hiding. They were living in fear. But after the resurrection, all of that changed. Look at them in the book of Acts. They're out in the middle of the streets there in Jerusalem and they're preaching Jesus. They're not afraid of the authorities. They're not afraid to die. The resurrection changes everything. I want you to think of that today. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Even now, Jesus is preparing a place for you and he's interceding for you. 
this world is not all there is. One day you're going to die, and I'm going to die. The Bible says it is appointed unto man wants to die. But because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are promised that the best is yet to be. As verse 19 points out, he leaves peace with his children. Verse 20, he talks about giving them his joy through the cross and the empty tomb. We have peace and we have love and we have joy from the Father. Could anything be more newsworthy than that? Certainly not. And that's why he goes on to say what he says in verse 21, giving them a personal commission. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. If the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has impacted your life, then you have a story to tell, and nobody else can tell that story for you. You need to tell it. Verse 22 shows the importance of this personal commission. Verse 22 and 23, puzzling verses to, to some people, but essentially what the verse is saying is that as we go and tell and people receive the good news, they're forgiven. If we don't go and tell and people don't have the opportunity of hearing, then they won't have the opportunity of believing and being forgiven. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I realize with salvation being of the Lord, somebody can come to faith in Jesus Christ apart from any other human being. But that's usually not the way God works. Usually the way God works is through the witness of somebody who is a believer already. And that's why he said in Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost ends of the earth. That's why Paul said what he did in Romans 10. How can people have faith in the Lord and ask him to save them if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? And how can anyone tell them without being sent by the Lord? The scriptures say it is a beautiful sight to see even the feet of somebody coming to preach the good news. 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. And Paul says in that passage that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation. What is that? The word of reconciliation is the gospel message itself that we preach. And the ministry is the work that we do in the ministry alongside of that message. The point is, we've been given this responsibility. It started right here in John 20 when Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I send you. We get over into the book of Acts, and there Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 come to faith in Jesus Christ. We continue through the New Testament to see the growth of the church. Down through history, we see the growth of the church to what it is today. And we think of how it started with Jesus telling his disciples, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he uses people. 
He uses people like you and me. God has His chosen, but it is through the preaching of the gospel that that His chosen come to light. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Folks, the implication of all of the resurrection narratives in the New Testament is that the message cannot stop with you and me. If we really believe the New Testament message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it is incumbent upon each of us who believe to go and to tell. I told you a funny story about a year ago, and I think when you see where I'm going with it, you'll agree that it bears repeating. Dr. Paige Patterson is the president of Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, where I went to seminary. He's not always been a a seminary president. He's been a pastor, too. On one occasion, he pastored the First Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he said while he was there at First Baptist of Fayetteville, Arkansas, they started a dynamic college ministry to the the college kids there at the University of Arkansas. They had a big college revival going on on one occasion. And Dr. Patterson said through that college revival with those college students, they were able to see the number one atheist on the campus of the University of Arkansas come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Some weeks later, Dr. Patterson said he had the opportunity of baptizing that young man in the First Baptist Church. And that young man, after he was baptized, said, Pastor, I've got a tremendous burden on my heart for my mama because my mama is also an atheist like I was. Dr. Patterson said, Son, give me her name and address and I'll go see her. He said, Pastor, you don't understand. If you did something like that, she'd beat you to death. And he thought, she'd beat me to death. What in the world's he mean by that? He said, well, son, I'll take my chances. Give me her name and address anyway. And the young man said, okay, but I warned you. Dr. Patterson said he got up to her front door and rang the bell, and here she came to the door. He said, I knew the Bible talked about Goliath, but I didn't know that there was a Mrs. Goliath. But here she was. And she looked like Mrs. Goliath who had joined a Hells Angels motorcycle gang. He said, suddenly I realized what that young man meant by saying, Preacher, my mom will beat you to death. And she said, who are you and what do you want? He said, ma'am, I'm your son's pastor and he's recently given his heart and life to Jesus Christ. Yeah, I heard about that. I'm not happy about that at all. He said, well, I'm his preacher, and I'm here to tell you about the same Savior that he's turned his life over to. And she said, did my son not tell you that I hate Christians, I hate preachers, and I especially hate Baptist preachers? He said, well, I'm not too fond of all of them either. 
She said, come again, didn't you just say you were one? He said, yeah. She said, but you're not too fond of all Baptists either? He said, no. She said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, if you'll invite me into your home for a cup of coffee, I'll tell you all about it. She said, wait a minute. Here you come unannounced to my door wanting to tell me about Jesus. And now on top of that, you're inviting yourself into my house, into my kitchen to have a cup of coffee? He said, well, that's the deal if you want to hear why I don't especially care for all Baptists. She said, well, this is going to be good. Come on in. And they were sitting there enjoying a cup of coffee together. And she said, now tell me more about this. You're a Christian. You're a preacher. You're a Baptist. You're saying you're not always too fond of them. He said, ma'am, have you ever moderated a Baptist business meeting? She said, no, I can't say that I have. He said, well, in all my years of ministry, I probably moderated several hundred of them. He said, and you know what? Some of those Baptists can be mean at those business meetings. He said, in fact, you know, ma'am, I'm convinced a lot of them probably aren't even saved. She said, well, reckon not. He said, well, I got a question for you. Do you want to go to hell and spend all of eternity in hell with some of those mean Baptists who don't know Jesus? Or do you want to get saved and come to saving faith in Jesus and go to heaven with the, with the nice ones who know Him? And she said, I certainly don't want to go to hell with the mean ones. He said, I thought that would be your answer. Can I share the gospel with you? And she said, please do. Two weeks later, he was able to baptize Mrs. Goliath in the baptistry there at First Baptist. What's the implication of the resurrection? Go and tell. It's not something to keep to yourself. It's the greatest news on the face of the earth.